please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture this morning is found in Acts 16, verses 4 through 12. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, good to see you all. Uh, my name is still Reed Kappel. Uh, it's a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I do invite you to turn to Acts chapter 16. Uh, but while you're turning there, uh, I, want you to, I want you to think back and kind of go down memory lane a little bit. I want you to remember what it was like to learn how to ride a bike, okay? So like, like, some, like some of you kids, like some of you are learning that right now. Any kids learn how to ride a bike this summer? Anybody? Okay, okay, so we got oh, some of my girls, that's good. So I, it's a difficult thing, right? I mean, I remember, I remember learning how to ride a bike and thinking this is utterly impossible. And so I, I have a picture, I think of my, this is the first legit bike I had, that's, that's me. Yeah, so this is freshman year of college. It was a great, exciting time. <laughs> And, uh, but, but I do, I remember trying to learn how to ride a bike and just being convinced, like, people must employ magic to get up on two wheels and move forward. It just seems impossible. Um, but I do, I remember it being just crazy, and I'm sure you probably thought that as well. Uh, but I'm kind of in the throes of this because, you know, this is fresh in my mind because I'm kind of helping each of my girls learn how to ride bikes at different stages. So my daughter, Lula, she just turned 10 last week, and we just got her a, a multi-speed bike, so that's kind of a new thing, like relying on handbrakes and not, not pedal brakes and shifting gears. That's difficult. That's a new, a new stage. Uh, my daughter, Jane, uh, she's mastering kind of pedaling off her seat. Yeah, so there she is, uh, learning how to pedal uphill and getting off the seat, which is a, a new challenge. Uh, Pearl is still in training wheels. I think we got her. There she is, which is fine. She's just happy that her bike matches her helmet. That's, that's the main thing. Um, and Ed Edmund, he's, he's a little slow. He's getting there. He's getting there. But um, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that as he gets a little older. But, um, but with each of my children, as, as I think about helping them ride a bike at the various stages they're at, I do have to think about where they are and their skill level. And, and I have to meet them at their skill level. I can't expect Pearl to be where Jane is or Jane to be where Lula is. I have to meet them where they're at, not where I want them to be at or where they will be at. And, and, and I share this as, as kind of a metaphor to look at and prepare us for these three remarkable stories that we find in the book of Acts chapter 16. And in Acts 16, we come before, we see these three stories of really three people encountering Jesus and experiencing the same phenomenon of Jesus meeting them where they are at in their circumstances. And in each of these stories, what I hope we will see, this kind of big idea I want us to unpack and look at, is that in each of these three stories, we see that Jesus rescues us where he finds us. 
that the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done is that he rescues us where he finds us. And I want to spend some time kind of delving into that idea as we look at Acts chapter 16, uh, but I want to pray for our time before we jump in. And so let's, let's take a moment to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the teaching of his word. Father in heaven, Lord, we come before you asking that you would bless the teaching of your word. Lord, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would enliven within us uh, an understanding of who you are and what it means that truly, Jesus, you are the one who rescues us where you find us. Lord, may you teach us this truth. May it form us and shape us as your people as we leave this place to be the people you've called us to be in the places you have sent us to. Lord, we ask this in the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So Acts 16, uh, three stories we're going to look at. The first is Jesus' encounter with the businesswoman, the businesswoman, which is the story of Lydia. So if you're familiar with the book of Acts, maybe you're familiar with the story of Lydia, but, but Lydia is truly, truly a remarkable person. Uh, not, not only is, is she influential in, in the history of the church, but I mean, her influence and significance both before and after her conversion cannot be overstated. She is a significant player in the history of the church, but she's also very influential prior to that. And so we're introduced to her in verses 13 through 14. So if you read along with me, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who is a worshiper of God. So Lydia is this well-to-do businesswoman. She's this, this entrepreneur. She, she is independent, self-sufficient, and she is the seller of what is referred to as purple goods, which were basically like high-end textiles that were for the kind of culturally and financial elite, you know? And so like, think like, like Dolce & Gabbana in the first century. That's kind of the picture of what Lydia is doing and what she's a part of. And in fact, there was an archaeological dig recently that kind of found some of these high-end, valuable purple goods, and there was a discovery. I think we have a picture of one of them. Yeah, so this is, like, this is kind of the high-value elite. If you didn't see that coming, you don't know me well enough, okay? That's your fault. No, but, but in all seriousness, Lydia, Lydia is this well-to-do businesswoman. Uh, the text refers to her as being the head of her own household, which more than likely means she is single, whether she is uh, single or she's divorced or widowed, we don't know. But what it does mean is that Lydia does not owe her success for her mercantile empire to anybody else, like to her husband or someone else. She is, in many ways, a self-made woman. And, and I share all of this to kind of paint the picture of who this woman is, to see that, like, really, by almost every metric, Lydia is living this good life. She's an entrepreneur. She's a business owner. Uh, she's successful. She's culturally prominent. She's generous. And she also has this kind of spiritual sympathy and intrigue in spiritual matters. I mean, because like Paul basically meets her at like the equivalent of like a Beth Moore Bible study. Like she's there, like she seems like a, a legit woman. And yet, there's something about Lydia that's missing. There, there's something about Lydia, as you see this kind of interaction, that she's kind of on the outside looking in. That even though she has kind of attained much and accomplished much with her life, there's a sense in which it's not enough. She is still in need of something. She's still in need, really, of rescue. And that is precisely what happens next, as Luke records for us in verse 14, what the Lord does in Lydia's life. Luke says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So it is the Lord who is the one who meets Lydia in her success and comes to her and says, you need more than just the life you've been living. 
he meets her and opens her heart so that she might, as the scripture says, pay attention to Paul. Which what that means is like it's a miracle of God that any of you pay attention to any sermon that's preached here, which that's, that's kind of the evidence here. But, but really, what Lydia is happening, what's going on in this encounter is that Lydia is seeing that, that while she is rescued, it's not just a story that ends there. It's not just that Lydia is rescued and her heart is open and she's able to pay attention to what is taught by the apostles. But we see a radical transformation in the way in which she reorients her, 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 her perspective on her life, on her career, and on her resources. We see that in, in light of the generous love she's received from Jesus, she responds to her newly found family, her brothers and sisters in Christ, with a radical hospitality and generosity. And we see that in verse 15. It says, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then the scripture says, and she prevailed upon us, uh, which is just this bold way of saying, like, you're not leaving. Like, you're coming over, and I'm going to make you a meal, and it's going to be wonderful. And so, so Lydia is really intentional in showing hospitality, but it's not just, hey, hey I've got some leftover, like, Triscuits and cheese, and I want you to get, have a snack before you leave. This act of hospitality is a catalytic moment in the history of the church because what it did, when you, when you read the rest of Acts as well as the book of Philippians, Lydia is really creating an environment where the church at Philippi is created and established. This is not just a simple act of hospitality. It is a catalytic moment in the history of the church whereby we see people in Philippi coming together, believing in Jesus, gathering as this local body of con a congregation, and having massive influence in the Roman Empire. Not to mention that this is where the, the book of Philippians that Paul writes in the New Testament, it comes from. It's inspired by this church. Again, I point all this out to say Lydia is this remarkable woman, both having great influence before her conversion and after her conversion. But I want to connect the dots. I want to kind of step back and look at her story and say, what does her story, what does this encounter that Lydia has with Jesus, what does it have to do with us? And, and I want to kind of connect the dots here because what we see in this encounter as Jesus meets Lydia is that Jesus rescues us in our success. That Jesus rescues us in our success. And, and my guess, my guess is that there's, there's a handful of us, if not more than that, that can really resonate with Lydia's story. That for you, your story was that, I mean, you have, you have lived a good life, you've been obedient, you've been successful, you've chased after success and accomplishment, you've, you've accomplished much, you have built a great company or business or a life for yourself, You're, you even attend church now and then, like you feel like you've got this good life, and yet there seems to be this ceiling that you can't break through, that even in, in by like I said, every metric that can be measured, you have lived this good life there is still this kind of haunting feeling of longing that remains knowing that your success does not satisfy the longings of your heart. And perhaps it's because your heart has not been open to the things of God. Perhaps what, what, what has uh, kept your success from, from bringing the satisfaction and contentment that you long for, perhaps the reason is that you have not paid attention to what God is telling you and inviting you in into this abundant life Namely, a life that is no longer lived for ourselves, but for the good of others and for the glory of God. 
a life that, that works and creates and produces and serves not just for the purpose of personal compensation, but rather for the sake of public contribution for the good of our neighbors. You see, one thing to notice about Lydia is that once the Lord opened her heart and her eyes were able to see and hear and believe the truth of Jesus, notice that she doesn't leave her career and become a missionary, which isn't a bad thing, it's a beautiful thing, but she remains within her vocation, within her sphere of influence, and yet with a reoriented perspective of how she should live into her vocation. Lydia is brought out of a life that sees work primarily about personal consumption and is released and sent into a life that sees her work as a means of contribution. And so in this story, Jesus rescues Lydia even in her success when her success wasn't enough. And the same thing is true for us, and perhaps this is the story that's resonating with you that you've built your life around success and and you've gotten it, you've attained it, you're there, and yet it's still not enough. And what Jesus offers us is a life that says, even in your success, I can rescue you. And he offers us a life abundant when our successes are not good enough. So that is the first story of Lydia, Jesus rescuing us in our successes. But then, we're introduced to another character. And this is actually the third character in the story, so it's a little bit out of order. It's like a Quentin Tarantino sermon here. But, but I want us to look at the jailer, the, Philipp, the Philippian jailer whom Paul and Silas interact with. So Paul and Silas, they find themselves in prison. And they're in prison because their public faith in a very hostile community, their public faith challenged some of the exploitative economic practices uh, of the people in that community. And and that upset them, and so they kind of bring Paul and Silas uh, before the magistrates, and they throw them in prison. They're beaten. It's not a pretty situation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the third story. Uh, But I want you to, I mean, you probably have a picture of what this prison was like, and let me guarantee you that your image in your mind of what this prison is like that Paul and Silas are in is nothing like what they're actually experiencing. Like, they don't have like these tin cups that they're raking against the bars. They're not doing push-ups and singing B.B. King songs. Like, like this is a disgusting image, this disgusting prison. The, the picture that we see in the text, it says that Paul and Silas were put into the innermost part of the prison. And the innermost part of a prison was typically the lowest point of a prison, typically underground, deep below the surface. And the innermost part of the prison was typically in in the shape of like a bowl, which meant that all of the disgusting human waste from the prisoners above found their way and settled in the bottom of the innermost bowel of the prison, okay? And so, so, I mean, are you you painting, you see the picture here. But on top of that, this uh, this prison guard, this jailer, chose on his own volition to put Paul and Silas in the stocks. And we see that by putting them in the stocks, they're, they're, close, they're, they're tied down close to the ground, close to the stench. So this is the picture. It's not just a little, little cell with a toilet and cable television. Like This is a disgusting picture that Paul and Silas find themselves in. And the scripture says that in the midst of this terrible environment, they are still singing praises and hymns to the Lord while they are falsely imprisoned falsely accused and beaten without legal representation. So we see this is the picture that Paul and Silas find themselves in. Then at midnight, what Luke records for us is that there is an earthquake. 
And this earthquake causes all of the prison doors to open, as well as for all of the chains on the prisoners to be unfastened. This is what's referred to in the prison industry as an uh-oh, okay? So like, this is not a good situation. So Paul and Silas, they're in prison, the chains are let go, the doors open, the jailer wakes up to see the doors open, and he doesn't inspect the inside, he just, he just assumes the worst. He assumes that all the prisoners who were entrusted to him have left, along with his chances for a nice Christmas bonus. Like, he, like, he, like it's over for him, okay? And so the jailer sees this, and he concludes that the only option left to him is to take his own life. And so what Luke records for us is that, is that he takes his sword and he's about to plunge it into himself, but as the sword is just inches from his navel, he hears these words from Paul shouting from the innermost part of the prison as Paul declares, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And it is at this moment, at this moment, that the, that the jailer responds with this radical act and he goes in and he releases Paul and Silas. He brings them out of the prison. And whether it's because he was, he was finally captivated by the truth of the songs they were singing, or whether it's because he clearly sees that this earthquake is a sign that these men are from God, or whether it was the compassion and grace that Paul and Silas showed by remaining in the prison so that this guy wouldn't be executed, we, we don't know what it was that motivated this jailer to come to Paul and Silas but whatever it was, he comes to them and asks them perhaps the most important question of all. And we see this in the exchange in verses 30 through 32, where the jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So, so this, this man, this man has experienced perhaps one of the greatest professional failures of his life. So great was this failure that rather than enduring the punishment or the humiliation of failing at his job, he would rather, in his kind of shame-honor culture, take his own life. He would rather endure that pain than the pain of punishment, humiliation, of failing at his job. And, and in this man's failure, he, he is at this point of great desperation and again, this is precisely where Jesus rescues him. And so just like Lydia, we see that Jesus rescues us in our successes, but the story of the jailer gives us this beautiful contrast that Jesus also rescues us in our failure. So Jesus rescues us when our successes are not good enough, you know, when they don't satisfy, when we've accomplished much and it just doesn't do the trick. But what we see in the story of the Philippian jailer is that Jesus also rescues us when we are not good enough. It's not just that when our successes aren't good enough, but Jesus rescues us when we aren't good enough. And so, so for this jailer, I mean, just think about kind of his perspective. Like, you see him kind of pushed up against the ceiling of his worldview. I mean, he has failed at his job, but also his job has failed him. He is at a point where he, he has failed at his job, and there's nothing about his job. He's built his life around this, his job, which is the most important thing about him. You see him pushed up against the ceiling of his worldview, and there's no chance, there's nothing left of his job that can provide any kind of rescue, any kind of hope, any kind of deliverance from the pain, from the agony, from the humiliation that he is facing as a failure in the most important thing about his life, namely his job. In this moment, you see he feels trapped 
without any viable option. And he thinks in this moment that the only thing left for me is to end my life. And again, it is precisely in this moment that Jesus rescues him. And my goodness, I mean, like, we, we all can relate to this story. I mean, maybe not perhaps to that degree, perhaps some of us we can, but I mean, how many of us have had days where we just, we just feel the, the weight of the failure of our careers, of our jobs, of our callings? I mean, how many of us have had days where we just feel like, I, I totally screwed up. What am I doing? I am a fraud. We feel it in, in the things that we fail at in our careers, in our homes, in relationships. I mean, whether you work in a loud factory on your feet or whether you work in a corner office on a computer, whether you are balancing the schedules of children or balancing the budgets of a company, we all have these feelings of being utter failures. The question is, what do we do in those moments when the thing that we've built our life around is not good enough? What happens when we blur the lines of what we do with who we are? And when what we do is not good enough, how does that begin to translate into our own identity and view of our self-worth? The question for us as we think about the story of the jailer is, it's not how do we avoid having bad days and not just how do we avoid failure, but rather what do we do in these moments that can keep us, that when we experience failure in our career, in our vocation, in our jobs, in whatever God has called us to, What can we do? What can possibly provide the solace and the remedy to being crushed, avoid being crushed by these things when we fail? You see, the problem is we tend to align and equate our value with what we do in our careers, our jobs, our vocations, our callings. And when our jobs, whether paid or unpaid, whether in the home or outside the home, when our jobs become the end, of, the end all of our existence, it's not unrealistic to think that we could find ourselves at the point that the jailer found himself, a place of desperation, a place of sorrow and pain, so much so that you think my only choice left is to take my life. But the good news of this story is that Jesus, yes, he rescues us from the emptiness of of our successes, but he also rescues us and meets us in our failures. And that he is able to provide for us a hope and a perspective and ability to face all that we go through in life. Not to the degree that it's it's not an issue anymore, but rather these failures no longer define us or crush us. Because the ceiling of our worldview, when, when our old worldview is just, well, my, my life is my job, my career, my family, my calling, whatever it is, when that becomes our life, it's no surprise that so many people find themselves in the position of the jailer. But when we see that Jesus rescues us from our failures, we have a hope that allows us to face these failures without being crushed. Thanks be to God that Jesus rescues us and our failures. Now, the last encounter, which is actually the second one in the order. So if you're following along, like, you're out of order here. Uh, The the second story uh, in the order that Luke gives us is the story of the slave girl. And it's actually, it's the shortest of the three stories. And it's it's a story, in some ways, it's kind of a throwaway story, but it's really meant to be the bridge between Lydia and the jailer. But it is no less significant as we see Jesus encountering her, meeting her in the place that she is. 
And so I want to read verses 16 through 18 just to kind of set the context here. So, so this is after kind of Lydia has extended great hospitality to Paul and Silas and the other apostles and brothers and, and sisters in, in the faith. And we see in verse 16, as we were going, which just a little side note, chapter 16, this is where Luke begins to put himself into the story. So all the way up until this point, Luke has just been kind of recording, this is what they did, this is what they did. But all of a sudden, we know that now Luke is a part of Paul's missionary journeys, which is kind of interesting for the nerds out there. So as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. So right away, we see this young girl, uh, we don't know her exact age, but typically when, when the word girl is referenced in scripture, it's typically a teenager or younger, okay? So this young girl is enslaved twice over. She's enslaved by an evil spirit, but she's also enslaved by her slave owners who are exploiting her, taking advantage of her, and, and growing their economic uh, capacity through her practices, and so you see this double enslavement, being exploited and being enslaved by an evil spirit. And when you contrast her with Lydia, I mean, it's just remarkable when you see the difference between these two. Lydia, the successful, well-to-do woman who has the freedom to do really whatever she wants, and then you see this slave girl who is trapped in so many levels. And what I love about that is that Jesus is after the heart of the successful businesswoman and the exploited, slaved child. It's a beautiful picture of the heart of Jesus, that he goes after the successful, and he goes after the tormented, the exploited, and the abused. But it gets even better because Jesus actually rescues this woman out of her greatest enslavement, which is that of the evil spirit. And as that happens, the city rejoices, and everyone gets cotton candy, and it's a lovely time. No, that's, that's not what happens. It's actually a really terrible situation, because this, these slave owners that had been exploiting this young girl, their, their economic engine is now dried up. It's not working, because she's no longer able to do fortune-telling. And so Paul and Silas, by being, pub being public about their faith, and allowing their faith to, to challenge some of these systems, it really did disrupt some of the, the economic practices of this community, which caused them to throw Paul and Silas into prison. You know, it's one thing for them to kind of talk about Jesus and, and kind of the theoretical, but once Jesus starts meddling with my business, that's a different story. And so she lo loses her powers. She can't fortune tell anymore. Paul and Silas are meddling in their business, which we'll get to in a second, but I, I want to go back to the slave girl. Even though Luke doesn't give a ton of attention to her in his writings, what we do see is that Jesus gives her attention in his rescuing of her. Luke doesn't give a lot of attention in his writing about her, but Jesus gives her attention in his rescuing of her. And what is so key for us to grasp, especially when you, when you see the story of the slave girl contrasted with the story of Lydia, it's the beautiful truth that you can never be so good or successful that you are beyond the need of Jesus. That's the story of Lydia. You can never be so good or successful that you're beyond the need of Jesus. But the story of the slave girl also boldly and beautifully tells us that you can never be so broken or abused that you're beyond the reach of Jesus. 
Do you hear that? I mean, just, just hear, the story of Lydia is that you can never be so good or successful that you're beyond the need of Jesus. The story of the slave girl is that you can never be so abused or broken that you're beyond the reach of Jesus. And this is where Jesus meets her. Jesus does not expect her to kind of figure out her life, to stop doing this fortune-telling stuff, to kind of pull herself up by her proverbial bootstraps, and then he comes to her. No, what we see in the story so powerfully is that Jesus rescues us in our abuse. Jesus rescues us in our abuse. Now, while many of us, I'm sure, as I said, are able to resonate and identify with Lydia, and I'm sure some of us, probably many of us, can identify and resonate with the jailer, I don't doubt that there are many of us as well here who can identify and resonate with the slave girl. That perhaps for some of us, the thing that has kept us from God, the thing that has kept us from, from this abundant life that he offers us is the pain and the shame and the guilt of abuse in our back life. Perhaps the pain that, that you experience and the shame and the guilt that we experience, that this is the barrier that has kept us from the freeing life that Jesus offers us. Perhaps the pain of what has been done to you or what you have done has remained with you as long as you can remember. And perhaps it feels like, like a mark that has been branded on your body that just could never be removed. Perhaps it's, it's something that is so equated with your identity that you feel it could never be redeemed or forgiven or forgotten. Perhaps it feels like a weight so unbearable that you don't even know how to function and move forward. And perhaps it's, it's, it's even a secret that you feel like you could never share or open up to anyone. And, and if that's you, if you find yourself today identifying with the slave girl and feeling the weight and the burden, the shame and the guilt of past abuse, what I want you to hear is that when we say that it's a weight that I cannot bear, it is a secret that I must keep silent, that it is, it, is, it is a shame that can never be forgiven, it's a mark that can never be removed, I want you to hear boldly and clearly that those are lies designed to keep us from the truth and the love of Jesus. That Jesus is capable of rescuing us in our abuse and declaring over us that we are no longer defined by who we are and what we've done or by what has been done to us. That the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' ability to forgive and heal and redeem and restore us from our abuse is far greater than our ability to hide and handle it on our own. I say that not to diminish the severity or the significance of past abuse by any means, but rather to help us understand that the shame and guilt and pain of our abuse, both as abusers and being abused, that that cannot compete with the ability of Jesus to love and forgive and redeem and restore that which the enemy has taken from us. What this means is that no child of God can sin or be sinned against to the degree that they are incapable of forgiveness, incapable of redemption, incapable of healing. That Jesus' power of love and redemption in the gospel knows no limits in the ability to heal the abused and to forgive the abuser. Do you believe that? Do you believe that to be true for you, for your loved ones, for your family members, for your friends, your coworkers? 
if you find yourself resonating with the story of the slave girl, would you please not remain silent about that? Would you find an opportunity and a way to bring into light the thing that has remained dark for so long? Would you find an opportunity to share that with someone you trust, someone you know? As as your church, we want to love you and journey with you and care for you in this time. And so we ask that you would find an opportunity to bring that to the light so that this shame and guilt and pain can be dealt with, can be forgiven, and that we can be reminded maybe for the first time that our sin, our shame and guilt was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, he rescues us, not just from our abuse, but he rescues us in our abuse. Well, as as we step back and kind of look at all three of these stories of Jesus rescuing the successful businesswoman, of Jesus rescuing the jailer who failed, and Jesus rescuing the slave girl in her abuse, it's just so amazing to see the beauty of the diversity of God's people. I mean, it almost sounds like the beginning of a joke, like, like a CEO and a witch and a jailer walk into a church. Like that, like that's what, it, but that's what it is. And you have to remember, like the Philippian church was launched out of this. And so the jailer, the slave girl, and Lydia were more than likely worshiping together after this time, praising Jesus, the one who rescued them in their success, in their failure, in their abuse. It's beautiful to see that Jesus's heart is for all three, which I love how John Stott puts this so well. Theologian John Stott says, there were few people more diverse ethnically, socially, psychologically, and culturally than Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. And yet Paul engaged them all with a gospel intended for all. But what I love even more than that is that in these stories, in these encounters that these three people have with Jesus, is that yes, Jesus rescues them as he finds them, but he doesn't just leave them where he finds them. He calls them into a new life. And, and so as we kind of bring this to a close, I want, I want us to consider a few things. As, as we wrap up and, and try to connect these, these Sunday truths with our Monday life, how do these stories form and shape us as a people as we leave this place? And so I want us to consider a few things here. When Jesus rescues us, where he finds us, What that means is that first and foremost, that barriers are removed. Yes, for sure, the barrier between God and man, that that is removed, that there is no longer this this dividing wall of hostility between us and God, but also between us and others. Barriers are removed. And so we should ask ourselves, if we are the people of God, followers of Jesus, are we a people that not just welcomes, but invites people who are different than us? Do we operate and function as if these barriers don't exist anymore? Are we a people marked like Lydia by a radical hospitality? Not by saying, well, I have to quit what I'm doing and do this other thing that's more important, but rather, how do I have a reoriented perspective to utilize my gifts to tear down these barriers? Which leads to the second thing, that when Jesus rescues us where he finds us, we see that our resources are stewarded. And, And we see this beautifully in the story of Lydia. Are we a people, as followers of Jesus, are we a people that that sees all of our capital, our financial capital, our social capital, our intellectual capital, do we see these as resources to be stewarded and used for the good of others and not just for our own personal gain? Are we a people that seek to work, to create, to produce, and contribute for the good of others and not just for our own personal compensation and consumption? 
Resources are stewarded. And then thirdly, when Jesus rescues us where he finds us, injustices are confronted. Injustices are confronted. Are we a people that sees and speaks out against the unjust practices within, that we see within our workplaces, that we see within our communities, our schools? Do we call them out in ourselves? Are we a people that sees and calls out these abuses of power in all forms? Are we a people that seeks the good of the city? Are, I mean, if, if, if there are followers of Jesus in this community, in this part of, of, of Kansas City and Olathe, then we ought to see radical transformation in our communities. I mean, we, we ought to see things like, like jobs created and marriages thriving. We ought to see people of diverse demographics connecting and sharing meals together. We ought to see a, a zero-tolerance policy for abuse in the workplace and in the home and the community. We ought to see vibrant schools. We ought to see, we ought to see kids with mentors at Woodland. That's not a guilt trip, I, I promise you. But I just want us to see that if there are followers of Jesus in a community, we ought to see that community thriving. And lastly, when Jesus rescues us where he finds us, sin is forgiven. Sin is forgiven. Are we a people that believes in the power of God to forgive our sin no matter how great, no matter how dark, no matter how secret? And are we a people that are so profoundly forgiven that we are capable of forgiving others in light of the forgiveness we have been shown? When we trust in and live out the truth that Jesus rescues us in our successes, our failures, and in our abuses, we find that we are freed to become the people we were meant to be, and that we were sent out to everyone so that they too might find that Jesus rescues us where he finds us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we come to you knowing that you first and foremost have come to us. Lord, I, I, do, not, I do not admit to know the, the minds and the hearts and the stories of the people in this room, and yet, Lord, I, I would be a fool if I claimed that none of us felt these, these failures, felt the emptiness of our successes and the pains of our abuses. And so, Lord, I ask for your spirit to meet us where we are, that Jesus would rescue us in our successes, in our failures, and in our abuses, that we might find the abundant life that you offer us. Lord, would you do this? Would you free us? Would you forgive us so that we might experience that freedom and also be agents of your goodness and grace and forgiveness in this world? Lord, may it be so. Would you break through and show us to who you are, namely the Savior who rescues us, where he finds us. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. As I shared, no doubt there's one of these three stories, if not all of them, are stories that, that we can resonate with, that we identify with. We all feel the, the emptiness and the hollowness of the successes we've sought to live for and build our lives around, and that they don't fulfill the longings of our heart. We all can resonate with being failures, failing at the things that we built our lives around and not knowing where to go from there. And I'm sure many of us can resonate with what it means to, to be abused in various ways and feeling like that is what identifies you for the rest of your life. And I do hope that you leave this place knowing that you are not defined by your successes. You are not defined by your failures. You are not defined by your abuses. You are defined by the one who made you and who redeemed you. So if that is um, any consolation, 
take comfort in this truth. Um, I, I, want, I want to share this, this word as our benediction, but I just want to say to you, if, if, if I can pray for you, uh, I'm, I'm going to be up here at the front of this, uh, the worship center, and so if you uh, would like to meet and chat and pray, I would love to do that with you and for you. And so, so hear these words as we leave this place, living under the banner of this truth. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, a reminder of our Savior who endured such great evil for us. For when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins, our shame, our guilt, our failures, our abuses, and his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.